Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. I find people who just say, well, if you just get rid of the state, all our problems will be solved. I find those to be the most boring and useless articles imaginable. Nobody finds that convincing. To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Roar, roar, roar. <laughs> That's what lions sound like, isn't it? Something like that. Either way, I'm glad to have you guys back here for another edition of Lions of Liberty. The OG flagship program here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we provide you three very unique, very distinct shows every week. Of course, every Wednesday, you've got Brian McWilliams bringing you a hefty dose of comedy, culture, and liberty with Electric Liberty Land. And then over on Fridays, John Odermatt takes a deep dive into all the injustices in our broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and check them all out. And I got to say, I'm, I'm getting both nervous and excited about the 300th episode of this program. I, I never dreamed I would actually produce 300 episodes of this show when I started out over three years ago. It's been quite the journey, and I do have some pretty big plans in store for episode 300. I know it's going to be really hard to top my episode 200, where I got to interview my political hero, really, in many ways, of course, the one and only Dr. Ron Paul. Go ahead and check that out. I'll post a link to that in today's show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 296, because this is, of course, the 296th episode of this program, just four away from that 300th episode. And you already might have an idea of what I'm doing for that show if you're a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, because they've gotten a little sneak peek at my plans. But for the rest of you, I'll be announcing that here on this show very shortly, but we are not quite there yet. I've got a few more guests to bring to you between now and then, starting right now. With me today is the editor of the Mises Wire over at Mises.org, as well as the Austrian, also published by the Mises Institute. He is also the author of the book, Commie Cowboys, the Bourgeoisie, and the Nation State in the Western Genre. I am pleased to welcome Ryan McMacken. Ryan, are you ready to roar? Uh, yes, I drank a bunch of coffee and this is me at my most roar-like. Okay, that's that's very good because, you know, I actually sometimes get criticisms out there in, in the YouTubes that I'm a little <laughs> too hyped up, that I, I have a little too much energy. And sometimes that's because, is actually because I did drink too much coffee. I have only had a little today, so we'll see how, we'll see how our energies match up. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. It's going to be great. Uh, now, Ryan, we'll, we'll talk about more of your work that you're doing at the Mises Institute and a lot of the articles you've written recently in a bit, but as well as your book, I'd like to touch on as well. But I want to learn first a little bit more about yourself. So why don't you take us all back? Give us a little bit of a glimpse into how you first became interested in libertarian ideas. Uh, well, a lot of it's lost in the mists of time back in the, the late 1990s. Um, but I, you know, it, what I, when I became uh, kind of, I guess when I started self-identifying as libertarian, it probably was when I went to the Mises Institute when I was 21, um, or maybe slightly before then. But I had a professor at the University of Colorado, and he was an Austrian. His name was Fred Glahey, and uh, he had been an editor for the uh, the Austrian Economics uh, Review, I believe was the name of the journal back then. Uh, and he said, oh, well, this summer you should go down to the Mises Institute for this Mises University thing that they have. And I had kind of heard of it, but I wasn't really active with that sort of thing at all. And so uh, he he got me into that. Uh, and then I so I flew down. All I had to do was cover my plane ticket. So I went down there and uh, and, and the brainwashing worked uh, after a week of being at the Mises Institute. I totally bought into it all. Uh, and, uh, and I just started, uh, a few years later, I started writing columns for Lou Rockwell's site, um, which was back then kind of the only libertarian site really on the web. We're talking like 1999 here. And, uh, it was either that or national review, if you were reading that sort of thing. And, uh, so I wrote for that for, boy, more than a decade and so on. And then eventually, 
just because I had, I had come to know Lou pretty well, ended up working at the Mises Institute. And uh, but there was no there's no great dramatic story there where I had some great aha uh-huh moment or anything like that. I did like after I uh, went to the to Mises University, I became more familiar with Rothbard's work um, and in graduate school, read a lot of Mises. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't any sort of like religious enlightenment moment or anything like that. It was just a, a slow process of being convinced uh, by what I regarded to be uh, the superior arguments of, of this group. So when you first showed up there at the Mises Institute back there in the the hazy uh, late nineties, you, you you weren't really going into it thinking about you know, political philosophy or, or anything like that. Was it really just because it was sold to you as an, an interesting economics thing to, to go do? You weren't really thinking of any anything grander outside of that. Well, I think I had some sense of what they were going to talk about because I had uh, been reading the Freeman back when it was a physical sure. magazine back then, and uh, and. And had read some articles on Mises.org, which was a new website at the time. Of course, the Internet had like five websites back then, uh, and Mises.org was one of them. Uh, We had a huge market share of the Internet back then. And uh, uh, so, I mean, I guess I had some idea of it. But no, the extent to all the information, the tradition that was there and all of that, that was all new to me back then. And what, what was it about? You say they had the superior arguments. So what was it about those arguments that really sucked you, I guess, further in beyond maybe just some of the surface level economic stuff and really into the broader libertarian philosophy? Did you see a lot of the overlap between maybe some of the stuff you began to agree with on the economic side and were able to apply that even to other areas uh, you know, in, in political philosophy? Well, on the economic side, uh, if you just having uh, just approached Mises, it's so thorough in its argumentation. It's so detailed. Every time you read Mises, you come away feeling like this is a guy who's considered every angle, who thought about every possible objection. And uh, so when you're done, you're uh, you just think, well, wow, this guy is just so eminently reasonable. He thought of everything. And uh, so that was certainly on the economic side, uh, a big influence it, on the the larger libertarian stuff that was probably more related more to religious issues. Actually, it was over at this time. I uh, I had uh, converted from atheism to Catholicism and I actually ended up uh, being sucked in through that to Rothbard's larger natural law arguments and those sort of things. And, and actually, the more religious I became, the more radicalized I became, especially on the war issue, the more anti-war I became. And so that was probably a larger influence on uh, just the larger philosophical uh, libertarian side of things. I actually want to dive into that a little bit further. That's, that's a very interesting path to me. You don't often hear, first of all, you don't really often hear about atheists, I mean, becoming Catholic. I mean, that does happen, obviously, but you, you often hear about people leaving the church or, or le- going from religion and and becoming atheist, but you actually went from atheism to Catholicism, but then that actually brought you o- over more so to Rothbard and his natural rights arguments, which is interesting because Rothbard didn't really take a, a religious, you know, a religious tact on natural rights. He just sort of presumed them and had several different ways to get there, and and basically said you can get there any way you get there. But once we're here, you know, here's here's what we can extrapolate from this point. So can you delve a little bit further into, I guess, how that that path you were going through and and your religious beliefs, how that sort of melded with the ideas of liberty and how that all played out? Well, if if you get into some of the nuts and bolts of it and you dig even deeper and you go down those And this could be a five-hour discussion, so I know this is probably too deep to to fully cover right here, but I do find the path pretty fascinating. Well, these also were the days of uh, now St. John Paul II, and if you read his stuff, there's a huge emphasis on the dignity of the individual person and the individual rights of the person and their status as a human being, granting them an inviolate, uh, inviolable nature as a person. So you, you can't steal from this person. You can't kill people. You can't uh, regard other people as things. And this really feeds into the larger libertarian natural law uh, and natural rights types of theories where uh, what is aggression, right? And is taxation theft and those sorts of things. Now, you would find, I think, on the Catholic side, a lot of those people who would say, well, yeah, taxation is permissible. However, when you start to dig deeper, what you find is that taxation is permissible strictly from prudential grounds, 
not on rights grounds. Like the state doesn't have rights. The state can't take your stuff uh, because it has some right to it. People just generally will tolerate or people can argue that, okay, you can tolerate taxation just for prudential reasons. And of course, people do that all the time, even libertarians, uh, myself included. I don't revolt against, violently revolt against the tax system because I want to stay out of prison. So there are prudential reasons for tolerating taxation. Uh, but it's not quite what a lot of people think it is that, yes, there's this uh, – there's this these moral grounds for taxation and for the state using force. It's far more complex than that, and it doesn't really get in the way at all of uh, of Rothbard's libertarian arguments. And so it was it was really being more won over to this idea of each individual person having these rights, and that we have to respect those rights. I think that that started to uh, to radicalize me and and make me seem more Rothbardian. I suppose there's a difference between. Um sort of accepting taxation to a certain extent, whereas they might just say, all right, well, don't get yourself killed or put into jail protesting a 30 cent tax on a tea bag or something like that. Maybe that's not the best way to go. That's a different thing than saying we agree that this method is the is, is morally perfect and morally good and and something we should just accept on a, on a moral level. Is that kind of the right. difference you would see there? Yes, and certainly there are always many grounds as well in this, uh, you know, in the Catholic intellectual tradition for uh, refusing, of course, to take orders from the state when the state is in the wrong. And a lot of this can be up to the interpretation of the individual as well. We, of course, find uh, Catholic conscientious objectors, for example, who refuse to take up arms uh, for the state, even when they're called upon to uh, to be in line with their obligations to the community and so on. Well, that sort of stuff, that's that's very much unto individual in, up to individual interpretation as well. And so a lot of the stuff you encounter among Americans, this idea that, uh, well, the state was put here by God and you have to do what just authority says, that's uh, that's not nearly as clear cut as a lot of people seem to think it is. Right. So so what are some of the subjects that, that you write about today now that you've developed over the last couple of decades here with your, your libertarian philosophy and your, your look into economics and religion and all that stuff? With all that gathered into the brain of Ryan McMacken today, what are the issues that just get you the most fired up, the ones that cause you to immediately take, I would say pen to paper, I guess nowadays that's kind of an old phrase, uh, fingers to type and that sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, back before I worked for the Mises Institute, I did write a lot more philosophical stuff. Uh, but nowadays, uh, I mostly just write whatever I think my employers want me to write. And uh, that's that's a lot less philosophical, actually, just because of the nature of Mises.org. We don't spend a whole lot of time on uh, uh, more deep philosophical issues. A lot of that's already been covered and we don't actually see ourselves as just a general libertarian philosophical website now. It's more focused on Austrian economics. Now, sometimes I'll write some philosophical things, uh, but for the most part, I'm just trying to to get good content up there that really explains things from an economic angle. Now, I would have to say if I had some specific thing that I discussed uh, on the site that was kind of my shtick um, – I think it would be trying to explain what does a libertarian community actually look like uh, in in reading even Rothbard or Mises or a lot of these uh, libertarian writers who are very good at criticizing the state and laying out the problems with the state. You find very, very little that actually tells us, well, then what would a free society actually look like? And so, uh, I mean, what does that look like? How would that actually manifest itself from where we're going now? I find people who just say, well, if you just get rid of the state, all our problems will be solved. I find those to be the most boring and useless articles imaginable. Nobody finds that convincing. Just saying, get rid of the state and everything will be fine will uh, uh, gets you absolutely nowhere. So you have to actually build more of a step-by-step approach. And uh, one of the best things that Rothbard actually did on this was the issue of radical decentralization. He wrote precious little on the topic, just a few articles. But when you start to look at decentralization, it's actually the first step toward moving toward a more free society because it gives people more choice. It allows people more experimentation. And the issue at hand really is choice here. And so the 
And I outlined this in an article uh, titled something along the lines of how radical decentralization and anarchism are the same thing. And a lot of people, they freeze up, they get confused, uh, they become upset when you use the word anarchism. However, they do understand the concept of decentralization and how that's feasible even in the world they understand. And so there's two poles on this. There's a world with one state, and that's the least free option. And then there's the world with uh, potential, say there's 7 billion people. There's a world with 7 billion people unto themselves. Now, uh, you're unlikely to have either just for prudential reasons, because few people are really have the means to just create a state unto themselves. The fact of the matter is most people are going to coalesce into groups for mutual support and so on. And you're going to have a lot of those, though. So really, if you want to move toward a more free society, you just move toward a more and more decentralized society. Now, for a lot of people, it's going to be free enough once they have lots of choices and where they feel that uh, once uh, states or governments or civil authorities begin to really oppress them, they have other choices to move to within uh, close reach uh, where they can access those other choices in a, a reasonable way. And so not everybody's going to demand that uh, that everybody live in this utopian uh, kind of state of total individualism. That's never going to exist. But a world of a bunch of small city-states where you have frequent uh, choice, where you can move from place to place if, if one of them is not to your liking, that actually is a feasible model, a feasible option for a lot of people that might actually come to pass and so when I write on that and when people in the comments section say, well, you know, we need no civil government whatsoever. Well, I just roll my eyes and forget about it because these are these are exactly the sorts of people that people criticize libertarianism, uh, criticize libertarianism for these people who are stuck in pure theory and seem to have no interest in what the the most immediate next step is. Uh, to creating a more free society. So I've tried to do that. What is the immediate next step we can take? And that's been kind of a focus of the website is what can we do right now? What is the next step? What is the intermediate step? What's this in-between thing that's at least on the right road to a more free society and not uh, lose our minds over what if we had everything we wanted, what would the most perfect society in the universe look like? I'm glad you brought this up because it's, it's a really interesting point. And, you know, if, if you just put out articles that just say get rid of the state over and over, you might earn points with a lot of online libertarians, a lot of people that already consider themselves anarchists, they might, you know, high five their anarchist buddy and feel good about things. But you're not necessarily going to convince new people who are already skeptical of some libertarian arguments. So what you really need to do is is bring them in and show them how, you know, some of their concerns can be assuaged. And I'm curious how you can combat, you know, when you talk about the subject of decentralization and how everyone's eventually going to be freer and better, the more we can decentralize just because people will have more choice. Choices, and this is going to lead to better outcomes, essentially, for everybody. How do you combat the, the progressive side of that argument uh, where they, well, they'll say, well, that's a nice theory. But if you just allow this constant decentralization, you're going to find pockets of people that are are oppressed because they're going to be in whatever they want to say. Maybe it's an ignorant area of the country, they might claim, where people are not going to have rights or maybe they have more realistic concerns. Well, I don't think these, this is a realistic concern in, in 2017, but 200 years ago, a realistic concern would be that if you don't have central control, well, some areas are going to have slavery. Some people are just going to abuse people. Or even in modern times, they might make the argument about why we need to go over to other countries and free people over there. So how do you sort of combat these arguments and still try to hold centralization as, as a higher ideal, even in the face of, of arguments that point to atrocities that could take place on, under decentralization? Well, of course, we have lots of cases of centralization where uh, horrific things happen, of course, the Soviet Union being a perfect example. And the decentralization that happened after that, i.e. with the end of the Soviet bloc and all of the secession that took place after that, I don't see how anyone could argue that that was a bad thing. Uh, yes, certainly Hungary breaking off from the orbit of the Soviet Union, Hungary could have, I guess, then become... Uh, horribly uh, oppressive and introduced slavery and done all of these things that the left tells us automatically happen anytime someone secedes from anything. But of course, that didn't happen. And uh, so how do they explain why it didn't happen? Since their assumption is, is that anytime anyone talks about secession, it leads immediate to slavery and even more worse, horrible atrocities. The reality, of course, is that 
the biggest example we can come up with of secession in the last century led to far, far greater freedom uh, than what came before it. So what's their historical argument? They what? They're still clinging to something that happened in 1865 when uh, when the South or 1861 when the South wanted to secede. I would remind them, of course, that it was. Uh, the abolitionists who wanted to secede first because their chant was no union with slave masters. And of course, the world would have been improved if the North had seceded from the South and provided a, uh, a situation for refugees to get out of the South. The entire Western frontier would have been open to non-slavery lands. It would have provided a lot more opportunity, a lot more chance uh, for people to escape. Now, they say, well, you would have had slavery for uh, many decades longer in the South if you hadn't had the war. What they're essentially saying is it was totally worth it that the North went in and 700,000 people were killed, uh, which is equal, by the way, today to killing millions upon millions of Americans. So their position is, is that if the same thing were to happen today, they're okay with a war that would have killed uh, two or three percent of the U.S. population or equal to millions of people. I mean, it's a totally bizarre and bloodthirsty ideology, uh, not to mention an ideology that's contrary to their professed views. So, for example, they don't want, say, Texas seceding from the Union because their assumption is that Texas would then immediately introduce slavery everywhere. Of course, Texas is a democracy with a constitution. So um, they like democracy, right? And constitutional government, maybe not in the type that right-wingers envision, but they're fine with it. And so what's the problem with democracy there? Their problem is they just don't like some people. So they want centralized government because they imagine that someday they'll be in charge of it and then they'll be able to boss everybody else around. So there's so many inconsistencies there where the best, biggest example when you come up with secession led to a flowering of freedom. Uh, they, they conveniently forget the anti-slavery types of secession that existed in the 19th century, i.e. among the abolitionists. And then they focus on this one example where a bunch of slave masters wanted to secede and then also say that, yeah, going in and killing 3% of the U.S. population was was perfectly fine and justifiable when there could have been other options available, such as uh, continued decentralization throughout North America, which that would have given more escape opportunities for the slaves themselves. So, yeah, you know, yeah, tons of bloodshed, I guess, might have accomplished their goals, but uh, there might have been other options as well. Somehow it always seems to come back to the Civil War every time. I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. <laughs> well, and it, it's, it just shows a certain obsession with people, too, uh, in the eastern U.S. Now, being from Colorado, of course, I mean, the Civil War is so irrelevant to our experience. There was never slavery in Colorado. In fact, our Constitution specifically prohibits it. Uh, and uh, also this idea that any state on its own is is going to be ruled under the iron fist of the white man is nonsense. When Colorado was created, its constitution was trilingual. About a third of the people who created the constitution were Spanish speakers. They always took into account uh, from the very beginning the rights of the Spanish speaking and uh, uh, the, the, the minority that came up from Mexico uh, when Southern Colorado was incorporated into the Union uh, in 1848. And uh, democracy has worked fine here in terms of respecting minority rights and so on. This idea that we need some Supreme Court to uh, boss us around and tell us how to uh, respect other people has always been nonsense, at least in this state. Hey, Ryan, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book, Commie Cowboys, in just a minute. But first, I need to take a quick time out to give a word to our sponsors. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. 
Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty, rock and roll. All right. One thing I really want to touch on before we wind up here in a few minutes is is your book. It's called again, Commie Cowboys. And uh, you know, I grew up watching westerns all the time, mostly because when my dad controlled the remote control, which was all the time, there were only going to be a couple things on the TV, and that was either a World War II movie or a Charles Bronson movie or a Western. And if there's any way to merge those those movies at all, then that was definitely what was going to be on. Uh, but I, I grew up just loving westerns, and we always hear. Well, not always, but we often hear progressive sort of point to the wild, wild west as kind of like a a sort of a, a straw man characterization of libertarianism. Oh, you guys just want to go back to that wild, wild west? What well, we all know, everyone was just shooting each other in the streets. And, and but what's interesting about the work that you found here is that when you go to pop culture and you look at the older western movies, they're not really portraying that at all. They're not really portraying that libertarian society in any way, shape, or form. They're portraying something quite different. So, what actually inspired you to uh, to write this book and dig? into this subject obviously i presume you were somewhat of a fan of westerns at at, at one point in your life well it was really just a research project i'd done for a graduate class uh and i liked him as well as anybody i actually hadn't seen all that many of them before i took on the book um and it it just it evolved from a, a short paper into a longer paper that eventually i expanded uh, into what's just a short book. I mean, you can read it in a few hours. It's uh, I like a short book. I don't like long books anymore. I'm so I I get bored fast. And so I I just I force myself to watch the I don't know the fifty or sixty movies or whatever that are featured in the book. You watch and, that uh, many movies for this, huh? Well, I don't even watch movies anymore. That book actually <laughs> ruined my uh, my liking of movies. And so now, having studied film for so long. They all movies all bore me now because all I can think about are like the camera angles and the uh, and <laughs> right. the sets and what the actors are doing and all of this stuff. So uh, movies are demystified and now they're boring. Uh, but the, uh, the some of the themes were very interesting, which I stole, by the way, from a feminist book. There was a book by Ann Tompkins uh, called uh, West of Everything. And uh, she had a very interesting chapter in there, mostly on the book called The Virginian. And looked at how the Western had really cheapened women's issues, that is, issues having to do with uh, things that happen with inside the home, domestic type stuff, things that concern women uh, in, in the Victorian notions of the late 19th century. And she was saying that to a certain extent, Westerns are a reaction against uh, this this uh, somewhat pro-woman social milieu that that existed uh, about 115 years ago now. And uh, and so I said, well, that's very interesting because a lot of these things that she calls women's issues are really just issues that we would have typically associated with the bourgeoisie in the 19th century. That is the liberal bourgeoisie, the, the social class most associated with laissez-faire liberalism. And so I dug into it a little bit deeper, and, and you find that, yeah, the uh, the heroes in the Western, uh, they tend to cheapen those things that we would associate with uh, civilized bourgeois culture. That is, uh, entrepreneurs, business people are often portrayed either as irrelevant uh, or stupid or actively bad, and and the good guys are always government employees, and you, you just got to look into some of the uh, uh, the details of some of the movies, like some of those old John Wayne cavalry westerns. A big part of what they do, in addition to killing Ill- Indians, is uh, to prevent uh, the white merchants from selling things to the Indians, including guns. So these old westerns are pro-gun control. They're anti-entrepreneur and uh, they're pro-military. And, I, and that's what the hero is doing. The hero is the one killing Indians and preventing people from trading with them. <laughs> right. The hero is uh, he, he's, he's killing the Indians. He's arresting uh, or shooting the uh, the private business owners and also delivering self-righteous uh, lectures to everybody who doesn't see, see how off how how awesome the U.S. cavalry is. And uh, and there's a lot of that. Uh, and later. 
uh, in some of uh, these uh, these 60s westerns, which start to get kind of a social conscience on on the civil rights issue. Still, the bad guys, uh, the most racist guys, the the most backward people are like the shopkeeper and the guys who, you know, who have horrible, horrible profit motives who want to make money. They're not like the kind hearted sheriff who understands uh, everybody's needs. So it just goes on and on. And it's really not until those revisionist Westerns that you see later in the six, late 60s, 70s and 80s, where you start to get a, a, a more of a theme where uh, it's actually the sheriff who's the corrupt bad guy. And, and it's sort of the uh, the black market entrepreneur who's the good one. So as they sort of uh, re-envisioned the concept of the Western film, they also sort of uh, tended to flip the ideology they were portraying on their head. Yeah, it's those revisionist Westerns, which all the right wingers denounce as being uh, un-American and unpatriotic and so on. Those are the good Westerns. It's uh, because they're skeptical toward government power and they tend to be uh, much more uh, forgiving of bourgeois values where there's a much better um, hearing given to uh, people who are just interested in more everyday concerns, which is what only stupid people paid attention to in the old classical Westerns of the post-World War II, because only dumb people wanted to make a profit. Only dumb people uh, hung out at the church uh, trying to convert people, because because uh, a lot of those Westerns are actually very anti-religious, too. Um, those allegedly pro-American Westerns, they, uh, they very much disparage religious people as uh, being fools. And so if you were a real man, if you really knew what was important, you grabbed a gun and you got out and you started shooting people and everyone who was worried <laughs> about like civilization or God or money was an idiot. And uh, it's amazing to me how people just totally ignore that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's cloaked in a bunch of language of uh, rah-rah America stuff. And so people buy into it. I'm curious, is there any one specific uh, Western that you watched that really just made your guts wrench more than more than any of the others? Are there any that specifically stood out as, my God, I can't even I cannot even stand to watch this for one more second? Or is (laughs) that all of them? (laughs) Well, some are definitely better than others. I could never get into the John Ford Westerns. And of course, John Ford was a propaganda filmmaker during World War II for the U.S. government. And then he was probably made the most uh, pro-cavalry movies. Uh, These weren't even where he had a small town sheriff. This was actually the U.S. federal government that was coming in and doing all the good stuff. And that was uh, She Wore Yellow Ribbon and Rio Grande. Uh, those are probably two of the 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 best examples of kind of that subgenre. Um, but I mean, not every movie of that period was bad. Uh, the the um, the Magnificent Seven's actually a good movie from that era, where right, it's a bunch of private mercenaries basically who the town hires to defend them from uh, some other criminals. And uh, so that was a nice uh, and it was a nice private transaction, sort of private security type movie, uh, which is pretty good. And that was from that era. But but that was kind of the exception uh, rather than the rule. But I would just say the worst of them was probably John Ford. And uh, what about on the flip side of the revisionist films? I, I got to think you maybe have a, a favorite or two you can point out of those. Well, probably my favorite of the laters where everybody likes Sergio Leone, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and then, of course, he heavily influenced uh, Clint Eastwood uh, with his later movies. They're probably the, the height of the genre was probably the movie Unforgiven, right? Which everybody uh, loved at the time. That won like a zillion Oscars as 1992, uh, I believe. And there haven't been many sig- socially significant Westerns made ever since. Um uh, but uh, I, I liked his westerns as well. Unforgiven, of course, being very anti-violence uh, in its themes. Now, uh, I think westerns have come a long way, though, in terms of their treatment of uh, indigenous peoples. And they're actually better now than they've ever been before because you went through these swings of the pendulum. So in the 40s and 50s. The Indians were really awful and you wanted to kill all of them in the movies. And really, as uh, pointed out in some other works, uh, the Indians were just stand ins for the Japanese. It's not a uh, it's not uh, an accident that all of these movies that came out after World War Two were this idea of these uh, um, Americans who are all 
uh, held up in a fort and they were surrounded by hostile forces and they valiantly fought their way out and killed all the bad guys, all of whom had brown skin, of course. And uh, this was the generation who had uh, fought the uh, the Japanese and, of course, believed in, in all sorts of vicious anti-Japanese racism. And so they just kind of transferred that to the Indians then in their film. And there was this uh, kind of this extermination uh, theme that was uh, frequently explored in the Westerns, where in order to be free, in order to make the world a better place, we basically have to exterminate all of these uh, these bad guys who are mucking things up for the white settlers. Now, that then swung to the other side of the pendulum, probably the most obvious and uh, silly example being Dances with Wolves, uh, where by then, uh, white men are evil in every respect, and when a white man goes and joins uh, an Indian tribe, he finally becomes enlightened and then hates everything about himself that is white. Now, well, that, of course, th- th- that movie fits in perfectly today. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It was way ahead of its time. I mean, yeah, right? It was way ahead of things. The, the SJWs <laughs> must just worship Dances with Wolves. And maybe that's maybe that's what really started this. And we're not even realizing it. it should I, be sh- I love that movie at the time. But I mean, now that you, when you put it like that, I don't know if I can really ever take it, take it the same way again. You're right. They should just remake it. Uh, uh, they should reboot it with a lot more of explosions and CGI and stuff. And uh, it'll be great. Uh, but but most Westerns aren't like that anymore. They actually come nicely down in the middle. If you look at any sort of frontier-themed movie nowadays, there are evil and good white people and evil and good uh, Indians or whatever is the, the non-white group. And so there's been a nice kind of swinging back to the center now. There's a complexity now where we recognize that there are hostile and non-hostile tribes, and the same is is true of the white. So for whatever it is that the uh, the social justice warriors might be up to, Westerns are actually pretty good nowadays in that respect, in that there's a complexity. Uh, it's not easy to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are just based on their skin color. Uh, as it might have been in Dances with Wolves or in some of those uh, post-war westerns. Well, it only took us a uh, hundred years or so to get to that point. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So we now appreciate uh, that uh, <laughs> that there's bad guys on all sides, and it makes for better filmmaking too when you're doing that. It's not as uh, just kind of this uh, silly black and white kind of everyone's color coded thing. And then so a lot of the movies are really quite good in that respect. The thing is, there aren't any big famous Westerns that you could really point to anymore, but just watching Netflix and so on, they're cranking them out still, right? Because they're cheap to make. And because uh, all you got to do is go to out, you got to go out to the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. All right, we'll go out to New Mexico for a few weeks and we'll shoot this movie and we don't even have to Rent build it. Rent some horses and some cameras and we're, we're good. Right. I don't, the only thing we got to build is like an old looking uh, shack or something. And uh, so it's real easy. So they're still cranking them out. Uh, but some of them are uh, are pretty decent. Uh, it's just nobody really pays attention to them as, as socially significant. But yeah, there's still a reason to watch them. Um, and in many cases, they're actually better than uh, what were made for many decades. Oh, Ryan, it's certainly interesting stuff. And we've covered a ton of interesting stuff today. I know that because we didn't even get to any of the stuff I was planning to talk to you about. And that, that's what I love, though. I love when I can do interviews that go in completely different directions than I planned. And it's really been a blast. We'll have to have you back on again sometime down the road. But before we cut things off, why don't you just tell everybody a little bit more about exactly what you do over at the Mises Institute. You're editing the Mises Wire. They're, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a daily blog, but it's very often updated as well as the Austrian also published over there at Mises Institute. Why don't you just tell everybody what that's all about and how they can get more involved with your other work? Well, we update, uh, we have about three or four articles a day. And the idea is to provide a variety of articles that people find interesting. You don't necessarily have to be into the, the hardcore economic stuff um, to to enjoy the site. Really kind of my goal is to to have it be a site where you don't have to be a true believer to come in and, and read something and find it's interesting. So I like to cover demographic issues. I like to, to look at at trends in in central banking as 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 for some for some of the people who are are really into it already, but looking at issues of decentralization as well. And then just just general economic issues like minimum wages and affordable housing and that sort of thing. And so we try to cover all those topics. And so anytime you go in, you should just go over to Mises.org. Uh, and check it out, and and hopefully you'll see at least one article per day that you find interesting, even if 
you're not someone who thinks of yourself as some sort of true believer in that regard. I really do appreciate you once again coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with us. And I know nobody out there is going to be able to, to watch a Western anymore without think without either getting riled up at how anti-liberty it is or maybe getting excited about how pro-liberty it is. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great thing about uh, uh, popular culture analysis is, is it helps people know how they're being manipulated. Right. You're watching this stuff and it's manipulating you now. Sometimes maybe that's good and sometimes that's bad. But a lot you still hear from people think, well, it's just a movie. It's just for fun. Wrong. It's never just for fun. (laughs) You're always being manipulated in some way by that stuff. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching movies. Just just know what messages you're taking in. And try to have fun. Try to have fun. Try not to lose your mind too much over the politics, but know that it's going to be there. Uh, Ryan, thanks again so much for coming on the show. It's been a blast. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. All right, gang. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan McMacken of the Mises Institute. And it's funny. I, this is why I like doing this show. I had a whole list of articles Ryan had written recently that I was planning to talk about. Didn't get to a single one of them, but that's good. That's because we had such a great conversation. We went down so many unexpected routes. I mean, I didn't even know about his book until I started doing a little more research just to do his introduction for the show, and I ended up downloading it and getting through about half of it before the interview. So I really did want to dig into the book, Commie Cowboys. Like I said, grew up watching a lot of Westerns, so I really do find his analysis pretty interesting. So I do encourage you guys to check out Ryan's work. I will go ahead and actually link to some of those articles that I was planning to talk about and you guys can go ahead and check them out because like i said really interesting guy who writes a lot of really interesting stuff over there at the mises institute and if you did enjoy today's interview i hope you did if you're still listening right now and you plan to stick around hopefully through episode 300 and beyond i hope that you'd like to help us grow the show and get this conversation in more of those earbuds out there and i want to tell you quickly now about three easy ways you can help us do just that The first way, and by far the easiest way, you can help us grow this program is by sharing the show, by emailing it to your friends and family. You can share it from our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can retweet us from our Twitter account, at Lions of Liberty. Or you can just talk about us to random people on the street. (laughs) I don't care how you spread this show, how you share it with people, but that is the easiest and cheapest way you can help us grow this show. There are some ways you can do so by spending a little bit of money. One way you can do that is by buying a t-shirt or a koozie over at our store at lionsofliberty.store. We've got several t-shirt designs by our man Dan Smots, as well as a Lions of Liberty koozie so you can drink along with us when we have our Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor episodes as we did just last week. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, because this is the really fun one, you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride. That is our paid support group. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a member of the Pride and get access to an exclusive Facebook group where you can submit questions to a lot of our guests and give input into a lot of our content, including the bonus content, which is available only to Pride members at that $5 or higher level. And we have a whole lot of fun with this stuff, uh, especially last week when we recorded a whole nother bonus hour episode after my Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor chat with Remzo Martinez, Johnny Adams, John Odermatt. We were still drinking. We kept this thing going for a whole nother hour, and we talked about all sorts of stuff. We talked about our views on religion. Uh, That got really let's just say interesting. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we just really have a lot of fun with this stuff and we're getting a lot of great feedback from the Pride members. So I really encourage you guys to go ahead and check that out. Only five bucks. Worst case, you cancel, you toss it away. But I think you're going to like a lot of what you get there. And if you go up to higher levels, you can get you know free t-shirts uh, at the highest level, $25 level. You can even participate in a monthly conference call, uh, which is basically like a live libertarians in living rooms drinking liquor. We usually do have a few beers and kick back and really have a nice time. We had our boy Daniel Lee, Thomas Baldwin on that last one. And we talked about all sorts of wacky stuff. Uh, again, religion. That's been a big topic lately. I don't know why. Maybe because Jordan Peterson's been in the news a lot. He's been making a lot of waves, especially with his last appearance on the Joe Rogan program, and he was a guest on this show as well. I will link to that in today's show notes, again, over at lionsofliberty.com slash 296. Now, as you guys know, things did get a little boozy 
you might say, in the Liberty living room last week. And I did have some plans to answer a few letters of Liberty with the gang, but we just got on so many different tirades, especially related to uh, Remzo and his uh, thoughts about Arvin Vora's comments. He did get a bit fired up uh, related to the military. So go back and listen to that if you want to hear a rant from a a fired up 22-year-old podcaster, Remzo Martinez. Be sure to check out the Remzo Republic while you're at it. But because we got a little bit ranty and went on some tangents, we didn't get around to my original plan, which was to answer a few of your Letters of Liberty last week, which, of course, fans of this program can submit by joining our private Facebook group. That's free. That's open for everybody. That's the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find that just by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in your Facebook search bar. Should pop right up and we'll get you right in there as long as you look like a real person. So before I wrap things up here today, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a make good and answer a couple of your Letters of Liberty. This is another Letters of Liberty song. That last one I wrote was a downer. It somehow just fell wrong. The lion said they didn't like it. I'm not sure if that's true. So I'm gonna keep on writing till I find the one they do. So please help me validate my poor life choices. All right, and my first letter of liberty today comes from Abe May May. Abe asks, what can libertarians do to stop losing members slash momentum to the alt-right? Well, to answer that, first we have to analyze a little bit why the alt-right is successful. Now, there's a lot, that, and, and by successful, I just mean has gotten attention, has gained uh, political men- momentum. They are mentioned in the mainstream political lexicon. Uh, many would credit the rise of the alt-right, however you define it. Whether, I mean, some people would define it to only include white nationalists and, and actual racists. Uh, I don't think most members of the alt-right fit that description at all, uh, but it really just depends on, on how you're defining things. To me, alt-right people are generally people that like to wear MAGA hats, uh, uh, like to create memes, like to, you know, use Pepe the Frog and kind of troll and post on 4chan. That That's, to me, what exemplifies a lot of the alt-right. But it really just depends on where you're coming from. But either way, they are certainly successful uh, up to potentially influencing the outcome of the last presidential election. But here's what I think we can take away from the alt-right, because there are things to learn from the attention they're getting. Most importantly, have fun! These people have fun. I think it's pretty clear, uh, whether it's a rally, whether it's a protest, whether it's a meme, people in the alt-right have a lot of fun, and it shows, and it's infectious. When people are having fun, they're getting more excited. They're enjoying themselves, and that it can be contagious for people that are around them. Even if they don't fully understand what their message is about, I mean, just the, the having fun is going to attract people. It really is. We need to be dynamic. Be bold. Don't just try to be the mainstream. Do not kowtow and conform to what the standard is. If you don't like the standard, you got to change the standard. I mean, if we're libertarians, if we're going to be a third rail, and I'm not, not just talking about the Libertarian Party, or I'm talking more about the liberty movement, and this is something that is going to come up in our 300th episode. That's my high-level teaser I'm going to give you for now before I make the official announcement of what I have planned. But yeah, libertarians really have to present not only a, a different message, a different political message with different policies we're proposing, but an entirely different packaging as well. I mean, if you're going to offer an alternative, you have to be an alternative. Don't just be a watered-down version of what we already have. I think equally so, whether you include him in the alt-right conversation or not, libertarians can learn a lot from Donald Trump in the same way. Not with his policies, but with the way he spreads his message, the way he uses persuasion in the political realm. I mean, libertarians could do a lot of that only with a good message. (laughs) You know, with the message that comes from a place of reason and logic and caring and compassion for our fellow man. I mean, that's why I'm a libertarian. I'm a libertarian because I have compassion, because I hate seeing people thrown in jail for owning plants, because I hate seeing people die from from bombs funded by my tax money just because they happen to live in the wrong place in the world. Channel that passion. Channel the reasons that you became a libertarian, that you got interested in those ideas that inspired you to even just download a libertarian podcast. Channel that energy and channel it into something that is unique and different and bold. But whatever you do, don't try to be what we already have. Don't try to be a watered-down version of what's already out there. 
You can't just kowtow to mainstream ideas and and half apologize for your views. It doesn't mean you need to go out guns a-blazing at all times in every circumstance. Obviously, the setting of your messaging is always important. You're going to speak differently uh, sitting at the dinner table with your mom and dad than than you might at on a college campus if you're uh, staging a little libertarian protest of some kind. I don't know. Point being, there's a time and a place for everything and every type of messaging. But one thing we cannot be is just a watered-down version of what already is. We need to be something new, something bold, something vibrant, something with life. And I think that is what the alt-right had, for bad or for good, that is something they encapsulate, and there's a reason that they have at least inspired conversation about them. And I think we can learn a lot in that respect. Maybe not from their message, but certainly from some of the, the tactics and the the attitude and some of the, the flair, if you will. I've got another letter from Zach Vall. Zach Vall, by the way, is the host of the Liberty Valiance podcast. Be sure to give that one a listen when you get a chance, when you're done with this show, of course, and, and all of the archives, the 300-plus episodes, all of Felony Friday, all of Electric Liberty Land. You get the point. But seriously, when you get a chance, check out Liberty Valiance. But Zach wants to know, do you think Alex Jones believes what he says, or is it just a performance? And Zach, I think the easy answer is yes. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think Alex Jones probably believes a good amount of what he says. Uh, Probably not all of it. Probably not every conclusion drawn. I think a lot of what he does is speculation, and maybe he states a lot of that speculation as fact. But Alex Jones has been around for a long time. I I don't doubt that he uh, has a lot of his political views that are probably what you might consider like an old right... Republican, so to speak. I do believe that he did really want Donald Trump to be president. I don't think he was, I think that was a true view that he had. So I think he's, many of his views he presents are true. Not necessarily every bit and nugget you get from him is true. A lot of the stories he presents to you are actual news stories that aren't necessarily covered by the mainstream, uh, where it gets crazy sometimes is the pathways he takes from there. But he's certainly a performance artist as well. And there's a few reasons that he's gotten so big. One of them is is his business savvy, and I think we can certainly learn from that. He was out there uh, doing his own thing on the internet, and then also making deals with radio stations and building his own radio network, and now he's got millions of listeners and and millions of dollars, so he's doing something right, uh, at least in that realm, and we can always learn from anybody that's that's being successful in delivering a message, regardless of what that actual message is, but there's no doubt, you've seen all the clips of Alex Jones uh, acting like a total wackadoo, but you know, hey, he's got the documents! So, if he's got the documents... Maybe there is something to it. But at the end of the day, we're all performance artists in a way. I I don't feel like I'm putting on a show necessarily here, but there's some percentage of me that is. I mean, I'm not sitting here in front of my microphone talking necessarily the exact same way that I I would if I'm just sitting having a casual conversation with somebody. It's just, it's not the same exact thing as much as I try to present the, the truest version of myself possible. Uh, I'm not so sure Alex Jones has the same uh, exact standards for how true of a version of himself he presents, but there's one thing you can't argue with, and that is he is an incredible promoter, and uh, we can definitely all take lessons from that. And speaking of promoting, I've only got one more thing to promote to you guys, and that is my guest next week. He is the author of No Campus for White Men, which takes a really hard-hitting look at all the craziness that's going on on our college campuses, uh, including a lot of hateful indoctrination, specifically towards white males. So we're going to dig into that a little bit with Scott Greer from The Daily Caller next week. Until then, folks, live long and live free.